I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. Let's get this meeting of the Rescue Aid Society in session. But before we do that, we do have a, a bit of a, a bit of a downer. Uh, Kiki, you, you wanna you, you wanna go with that? Yeah, it is our sad news to announce that we have lost another member of the extended Disney family. This time, we have uh, to announce the death of actor Ned Beatty who died on June 13th, 2021. Um, he started out uh, in movies like Deliverance, Network, the uh, Superman and Superman 2, I believe. Uh, mm-hmm. But his connection to, to Disney, of course, best known for Toy Story 3. He is uh, our, our big... Huggable, snuggable, lots of love bear. Uh, so many good movies that he was in. I mean, like I said, oh, the day he passed, there was just messages and messages, messages and messages of of Otis from Superman. Among the the, the nerd culture, I guess, is that role as uh, Lex Luthor's sidekick Otis from the Superman movies, all over all over the place. Yeah, so lots, lots of hugging bear. Um, you know, just that comes across in that big, snuggly visage. But and man, and and they still sell those pink teddy bears all over Disney, everywhere. Yeah, um, I love the design. Of that, and then of course, you know the the voice that goes along with it. You know that that initial impression you get, mm. um, and then he he was so good uh, at when the change needed to come, and you you started to think that maybe there's a little bit more to to this. <laughs> Great, great uh, performance, as as most of his performances were. I mean, just an amazing actor. Uh, one of my favorite performances of his, and this is going to be a weird one, was in a movie called Repossessed, which was starred uh, Linda Blair and Leslie Nielsen. And uh, based off the fact that Linda Blair was in that movie, it was a parody of The Exorcist. And uh, he played a, uh, a Jerry Falwell parody character named Ernest Weller. And he was so good at parodying that persona. If you weren't around in the 90s and you don't know who 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 that preacher character is, I cannot explain it fully, but if you were around that one of the first evangelicals to be on television and uh this and you know Ned Beatty doing a perfect parody of that character. Terrible movie. Terrible movie. But his persona, his acting of that type of character, perfect in that role. 
Of course, he was also in the proper Exorcist film series as well. Mm. He was uh, in Exorcist 2. Mm. So Probably why they had him in the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's they, they, they pulled um, various people who were kind of uh, through, throughout that series. Um, and also, uh, uh, he, he does have a, a Marvel connection, although a pre-Disney Marvel connection. Uh, he was in the sort of forgotten 1990 Captain America film. Not the ones with Rep Brown, uh, which are kind of my my favorite pre-Disney. Um, rubber but... suit, rubber ears, <laughs> Captain America. <laughs> yeah, but uh, the, the 1990 uh, version, uh, he had a, a part in that. Uh, but, you know, great, great career and was uh, working... Uh, pretty consistently uh, up until about uh, 2013, he kind of yeah. had to retire there, I think, because of because of his health. Um, but, uh, man, what a career. All right, let's, uh, let's move on here. Let's get to our feature, The Rescuers. This is another... Yeah. I, I wanted to say, uh, this was a, uh, a very special request. Um, we, uh, had a request from our, our listener, one of our listeners, Ian Price, uh, who has been a longtime listener and a good, good friend of the show. So, um, thank you, Ian. And Ian said this was one of the dearly held Disney classics <laughs> from childhood, um, and described it as, in memory, a bit of a hot mess, but a bit of a beloved hot mess, and wanted us to take a look at it and see what we thought in the rewatch and retrospect. So that's what we're going to do today. <laughs> All right, now we can properly get this meeting of the Rescue Bay Society underway. Indeed. All right, so let's kind of talk about this whole there's a lot of stories going into this movie before we get into it uh so we have our author uh marjorie sharp has done a lot of novels mostly adult novels that it did get become movies later on uh the notorious landlady forbidden street clunky brown but his most her most well-known work is the miss bianca book series which starts with 1959's The Rescuers. And pretty much as soon as that book came out, Walt Disney was all on it, that he wanted this to be his next movie. Until he actually read it. You see, The Rescuers, the first book in The Rescuers series, is about a few couple of mice, just like in this movie, who travel to Norway to rescue a poet who is imprisoned by a dictator. Walt didn't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole, saying it was too political for the kind of movies he wanted to make. Immediately, I want to watch that movie more than I wanted to watch this movie. <laughs> so this movie kind of sat in developmental hell for a while, long after, again, then Walt passed away. And the new group, the new blood of Disney animators, uh, kind of headed by Don Bluth, we have talked about before. Tried to, wanted to take another crack at this idea. 
originally basing it off the most recent book in the series at the time. That would be book six, Miss Bianca in the Arctic, where the rescuers would go rescue a polar bear. But it didn't quite... Originally, and the polar bear was going to be voiced by Louis Prima. But Hmm. Louis Prima at the time uh, had contracted... uh, was just diagnosed with cancer. And would pass away shortly afterwards. So those that that plan was scrapped. So they went back to the drawing board again, and then decided to base this movie mostly off the second book, simply titled Miss Bianca. Character names are changed. Some of the animals are changed, but the plot remains the same, and that is what the most of this movie is based on. The first 10 minutes are based off the first book, as in how Bernard and Bianca are put together, but the rest of the movie is completely the second book. Which is why both books are credited at the beginning of the movie, and since Disney decided to pretty much change everything about the movie other than the the basic plot, it is said, suggested by, not based on. Yeah, whenever you see suggested by... It means we bought the rights to the book, so we have to give the author some credit, but this is in name only. And also they wanted to do another thing in that they wanted to bring back a favorite character, sort of. In that one of the ideas for this movie was it to be a sequel to another hit Disney movie, 101 Dalmatians, as the villain was originally going to be Cruella DeVille. And you can see in a lot of Medusa in this film really comes off as Cruella-like. Down to, I kind of want to say they reused animation frames. Especially driving. She drives the same car. And and a lot of the facial expressions and stuff, I kind of just want to say they changed the hair and some of the clothes. Yeah. And just drew over the, the original artwork. This was that post-Walt era where they did a lot of it. Yeah. And, and it's still that Xerox style, which is immediately apparent. So I, I really just want to say that they just took old cells and honestly just drew straight over them. There's a scene in, in the movie where Medusa is riding her, her alligators as jet skis and is taken straight out of Peter Pan. That's why that looks so familiar. I thought, I have seen this before. No, that's Captain Hook riding the croc from Peter Pan. So yeah, this was supposed to be a sequel to 101 Dalmatians, but uh, Disney at the time was not really into sequels or doing animated sequels. Boy, that wouldn't that would not uh, hold true for the Disney Corporation. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> so they would put this together and release it, and of the post Walt era movies. This was the most successful and the most praised critically, which says a lot. I mean, this is like this movie, considering what other movies were were around at the time, you know, Robin Hood, Aristocats. You're saying that this movie <laughs> that everyone says is the best of this era and the the numbers don't lie. <laughs> it says a lot. I'm just saying it says a lot that this is the one. And this was the one that they chose saying, we're going to make the sequel in the 90s based off this movie. (laughs) And that's going to be our first ever sequel animated movie. 
and for the most part, that kind of ends the controversy until the 90s, when this movie was released on home video to coincide with said sequel. You see, um, we've kind of talked about VHS scandals before, like with Roger Rabbit, like in the and original... Little v- mermaid and, and Little Mermaid. And Little Mermaid. So, like, if you pause the movie at certain points, you see things that may not be suitable for children. And sometimes may not be there at all. Lion King. Yeah. But, yeah. So, days after this was released, uh, a screenshot showed up in, in places... Uh, the scene where Bernard and Bianca are flying on Orville the, the Albatross in one of the buildings is a picture of a topless woman. And not an animated picture of a topless woman. Like, this was a legit real-world picture of a topless woman showing it all. At least from the waist up. And this has been... We don't know how long this has been in the movie, probably since the beginning. But, uh, yeah, when this was released in the 90s... Uh, it was there for all to see, and by pausing the video at a certain point in that, in that scene, as uh, Bernard and Bianca are passing by these buildings, obviously it led to a recall of the videotapes, and they have since uh, digitally altered that scene. So if you're watching this on Disney+, Plus, if you're watching this on DVD now, uh, you will not see that scene. They have digitally altered that to just be a regular window. And uh, to this day, no one at Disney even knows how that got there or who put that there. Considering the number of animators on this film, it could have been anyone. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure whoever put it there has probably chuckled to themselves for decades now if they're still alive. But I'm pretty sure this is the inspiration for that scene in Fight Club. Yeah, I mean, honestly, stuff like this has been going on in films for since the beginning of film. Mm-hmm. Up until, you know, home uh, video and and people being able to pause and, and stuff like that, you had to work in the industry and be able to get your hands on film strips to be able to find any of these things. There was no real ability for children to run into these things. It, it was kind of a rather harmless prank for Decades. <laughs> you know? It really was just a bunch of adults in a very niche community having a joke with each other. Until VHS. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, whoever did it probably forgot they did it. Yeah. Like... Oh yeah, I heard. I mean, I can see that the news story coming out, and then see like, oh wow, I forgot I did that. Yeah, uh, to be honest, if you're kind of you know up late one night working on this sort of thing, and you're like, oh yeah, I'm gonna put this in so Bob will see it when he's editing it, and then he'll take it out, and then Bob just misses it because he's up late working and it just slips his notice. You know? Mm-hmm. It was probably a thing that was meant for the editor to see and go like, oh, you little scamp, and then take it out before it ever really went, you know? 
So I, I'm well, guessing that's like how his... half these things end up in there. Is it's probably just meant to make it from one area of the workroom to another area, and then somebody will go like, oh, and then erase it or remove it and throw it in a trash can, and then it keeps moving along. It's they're probably never were meant to see the light of day, but. You know, people are overworked or too fast or, you know, whatever. And it just ends up missing somewhere in the process. That's the 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 controversial part of the uh, the actual film itself. Enough uh, enough working around here. Let's actually get into the, this film properly. Uh, let's talk about the uh, the people that are in it. All right. Well, as our as our main duo, we're gonna start with Bernard, played by the legend himself, Bob Newhart. Total stunt casting. <laughs> yeah, one of the greatest comedians of all time, and also one of the greatest television personalities of all time. The the head of two of the greatest sitcoms ever to be on television, The Bob Newhart Show and Newhart. Um, I grew up watching this man probably every single day on my television between one of those two shows. Um, some of the greatest stand-up comedy routines ever created as well. Um, if you've, if you've never actually just sat down and watched some of his old, um, you know, he's got these old routines where he's talking on a telephone. Yeah. yeah. Hello. Uh, Lieutenant Stevenson here. You found a shell on the beach. <laughs> oh, that, that kind of shell. Well, I'll tell you what, well, I'll send somebody out in the morning and we... Gee, I was uh, kind of hoping that was your watch making that noise, Willie. Those are so good. Oh, it's just... Uh, I, I don't know. I've got, too, I've got too many and I could just talk for hours on them, so I'm not even going to start. I'm not going to go down that path. But if you've never seen some of his old stand-up routines... Do do yourself a favor and go look them up. They are amazing. Um, possibly the man who pulled off the greatest television finale in all of history. The ending to Newhart. Where he wakes up in bed beside the wife from his previous television series. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... It's it's still a classic. Um but yeah, it just um and then recently he's been uh introduced to an a new generation because he's Sheldon Cooper's version of Bill Nye on Big Bang Theory. There's an entire generation who knows him from Elf. Well, yeah, uh, I guess I've I've never seen it, but I would I would I would suppose that 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 movie gets talked about every time every Christmas time. So enough people have seen it; they they know Bob probably know Bob Newhart from that. But he's got such a long and le legendary career beyond that. Anyway, just amazing, amazing man. Uh, love him. 
uh, and his work. So, uh, and as our as our other main character, Miss Bianca, uh, we have Eva Gabor. Talk about your 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 sitcom legend. Yeah, um, Green Acres. Dun 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 dun. dun. Yeah, best known as uh, Lisa Douglas on Green Acres, the wonderful uh, city city wife that gets moved out to the country uh, to be the rural farm wife now. One of the amazing kind of Hooterville line of shows. Uh, along with like uh, Petticoat Junction and uh, things like uh, Beverly Hillbillies and and stuff as well. Mm-hmm. This is actually her second Disney role because she voiced Duchess in the Aristocats. Yeah, came from a a very famous acting and uh, socialite family. Um, she had two sisters who were also super famous, Jaja and Magda. Um, and the reason Miss Bianca is Hungarian, the Hungarian representative in this film, is because uh, Eva Gabor was from Hungary. She was uh, born in Budapest. Really uh, interesting and uh, fabulous, beautiful uh, woman and uh, such a great talent for comedy. Uh, moving along, as our... Uh, horrible, horrible villain uh, in this. We have uh, Geraldine Page. Geraldine Page was kind of an interesting one. She was a really highly acclaimed actress. Uh, She did a lot of Broadway. She was really well uh, regarded. She won an Oscar. She won Emmys. Um... She had BAFTAs. She was nominated for four Tonys. I don't believe she ever won one. Um, she studied under uh, acting legends like uh, Uta Hagen and Lee Strasberg. Um, if you know anything about acting, you know that they're two of the greatest acting teachers in history. And then she fell afoul of the um, House on american Activities Committee. Um the McCarthy blacklist uh, during the Red Scare and the Communist Purge. She was blacklisted basically because she was uh, connected with Uta Hagen. And she was blacklisted in Hollywood, did not make a film for around eight years. There is a great video by a YouTuber named Emily Clark, mostly about the the, the play Rock, Rock the Cradle. Oh, Cradle Will Rock. That's the one. Cradle Will Rock, yeah. which covers the uh, blacklisting. I definitely recommend watching that if you ever get the time. Yeah. Um, that is the only time I, uh, that the U.S. government actually sent troops out to stop the performance of a play. So if you don't know about the 
production of Credible Rock, uh, you should look into it. It is a very fascinating point in our history. So after that point in time and after uh, she began to get work again, um, then she she got her role in The Rescuers and everything. Um, she also uh, ended up married to uh, someone you may have heard of, Rip Torn. <laughs> um, and they would remain uh, married until her death. Um, interestingly, she died in the middle of a Broadway run hmm. for a play called Blythe Spirit, which if you know anything about it, is about the uh, ghost of a wife coming back and haunting her husband. Um, yeah, she was really a, f a fascinating woman and um, really well respected uh, in her in her time. Kind of interesting, her her performance here. Um, they had her, her memorial service at the, the Neil Simon Theater. Um, and it was uh, incredibly well attended. Like, James Earl Jones showed up and, and everything to uh, there. Um, Rip Torn said that she was the, the love of her his life and he would uh, never stop loving her. So, moving on there, um... Our other villain? Her, our other villain, uh, we have Joe Flynn as Mr. Snoops, who, uh, was, uh, Madame Medusa's, uh, kind of lackey, I guess. Yeah. He was a, uh, character actor that most people know, uh, from the, uh, TV series McHale's Navy. He had a bit of a history with Disney. He would show up in, like, uh, Computer War tennis shoes and uh, Million Dollar Duck, Love Bug. Um, so those kind of um, li live action films. But then also, uh, he did this one, and unfortunately, this was his final role before his death. Hmm. Um, but for most people, they would, they would remember him more for his, his role on McHale's Navy. That was really his, his biggest, um, biggest role for his career. Uh, unfortunately, to continue a trend, um, as, uh, Orville the Albatross, that is kind of the, the plane, I guess, for lack of a better word, for Bernard and Bianca, we have Jim Jordan. He was best known as Fibber McGee in the radio series Fibber McGee and Molly, and that was a massive massive hit radio show. I really cannot overstate how huge that show was when it was on the air. Um, and it really was his major and almost only claim to fame. And they 
really wanted him for this role. And they got him. Um, Technically, they, he, he would have been retired. By this yeah, he, he had been long retired. Um, he had not done anything um, since his uh, wife, who was also his comedy partner. Molly. Um, <laughs> Molly. Uh, it, her real name was Marion. Um, but uh, she had played the character of, of Molly. Um, she When she died, he hung it up because he was like, well, you know, we were a double act, so I'm, I'm not doing anything solo. And he was in his, he was like 80 when they did this film and they had to lure him out of retirement. He did the film and uh, died not too long after. Um, and this would be his last performance. So, yeah. So, really interesting that he's in in here because like like I said, he had not performed for over a decade. Um and had this this is like his only solo performance, I think, in his entire career uh with without uh Marion. So, uh, moving on, um, a couple of other, uh, smaller bits, but also of note. We have, as the little dragonfly Evanrude, mm -hmm. we have, uh, James, uh, Jimmy McDonald. Um. The, the second voice of Mickey Mouse. <laughs> the second voice of Mickey Mouse, and he was the original head of the Disney sound effects, uh, department. So, interesting to have him in here. Um, and a couple of other, uh, quick people of note who kind of have, uh, smaller background roles. Um, the chairman of the Rescue Aid Society is played by a man named Bernard Fox. Uh, you may know him if you watch a lot of, uh, TV from the 60s and 70s. He was Dr. Bombay in Bewitched. Uh, he showed up, uh, as Colonel Crittenden in Hogan's Heroes. Malcolm Merriweather in Andy Griffith. Uh, he showed up on uh, Barnaby Jones. He was in uh, the Herbie movies. And he shows up as uh, Archibald Gracie the Fourth in the film Titanic. Interesting to have him in there if you're a fan of uh, 60s TV. And uh, kind of one of the last ones I want to talk about uh, just in passing here is um, Deadeye the, the Rabbit. Uh, in there is played by George Lindsay, who you may remember as Goober Pyle if you watched Andy Griffith or maybe RFD or uh, Hee Haw. Just uh, kind of an interesting little thing. And uh, De Deacon Owl uh, is played by John Fieldler, who we've talked about before. One more thing, I'm gonna th I'm gonna throw it out there. Uh, Pat Brutram as uh, as Luke the Muskrat, who we've talked about before. Sheriff of Nottingham from Robin Hood. He's in Aristocats, another legendary Disney actor. Yeah, uh, so we had wanted to talk about the the uh, music in this. There are songs. It is not a musical, but there are songs in here. Which is very strange for this era of Disney. Because yeah. Disney was always known as doing the musicals. This, It's very much like what they would do with Tarzan many years later, where... The songs tell the story, but no one in the character, no one, none of the cast is singing it. And and it's such a bizarre 
tonal shift whenever the songs come up because they are very uh, adult contemporary. Does not what you would think in a Disney musical. To to borrow to borrow a line from Mystery Science Theater every time the music starts, it's like, "Hi, you're being kidnapped by the Light FM." <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, AM radio, very much, you know. It's it's so bizarre, and the weirdest thing about it is that the people who are who wrote the the songs, they are two two women who once worked with Phil Spector. Talk about a cursed... We're already cursed, okay? One of them, her first name is Ayn, A-Y-N, so we're already doubly cursed, okay? The other thing they wrote is Gonna Fly Now from Rocky. Their career is th- the music from The Rescuers and Gonna Fly Now from Rocky, which I think may be the most polar opposite. Yeah, you play any of the songs in this movie, and then you play Gonna Fly Now, you would never think that those were written by the same people. I don't know how you go from... You know, Gonna Fly Now is like... I'm... I'm I'm going to the gym and I need something to pump me up. And then it's, I don't know, uh, the songs from the rescuers are like, I'm out of Ambien and I desperately need sleep. <laughs> like, really, there are four songs. There, there are five songs, technically four, because one song is repeated twice. And the only song that really feels like it's from a Disney movie is the Rescue Aid Society theme song. Yeah, that one is kind of okay. Uh, I'll I'll give that one a pass because it's it's kind of like a, a little kid's chanting song. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, I'll I'll give that one a. But the rest of them are like the one that's over the credits is two lines long. And mostly, ooh. Yeah, it's, it's like, ooh. And then it's like, who will rescue me? Who will rescue me? Who will rescue me? And I'm like, well, not me. You forward me. I'm asleep now. This song is actually credited to a character. The character is The Bottle. Yes, it is sung by The Bottle. So Shelby Flint, who sings every other song in this movie, is credited in this movie as The Bottle. Yeah. No no disrespect to Shelby Flint, because she has had a couple of hits under her belt. Her big hit being Angel on My Shoulder in the 60s. But not the right voice for this movie. I don't know what the right voice would have been for these songs. I'm sorry. (laughs) They're really bad. They're really bad. It feels like the songs are an afterthought. Like, we need songs. This is a Di- it's like there was going to be no songs in this movie, and then somebody decided, it's a Disney movie. We need songs. Somebody write some songs. Yeah, it it was kind of like they walked out of the studio and went like, is anyone here a songwriter? And these two women happened to be walking by, and they were like, why, we're songwriters, good sir. And they were like, 
give us the first four songs you have on you. And they're like, here you go. And they just happen to be like these four really boring, easy listening songs that have nothing to do with this film. And they're like, sold. Also, we commissioned you to write a 20 second song that has the title Rescue Aid Society. And they're like, deal and done. <laughs> Hand us money. <laughs> the most famous song from this is a reuse of the U.S. Air Force th song for Orville. Yeah. <laughs> like, and for pennies, a jolly good fellow. Yes. <laughs> for so, pennies, a jolly good fellow, and she has parents now. She has parents yeah. now. Like, there was a the, 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 there was another attempt at a sequel because we'll, we'll, we'll kind of get to more of the sequel stuff later. But apparently, uh, Penny was supposed to come back and be the person that adopted Oliver and Oliver and Company. Yeah. Okay. I can I can kind of see that. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so is this the first Disney movie to have a cold open? Because, like, we most Disney movies up to this point, you start with the Disney Presents, and then you get the, the, the intro credits. But this one starts with the scene of Penny dropping the, the, the bottle into the water, and then you get the credits. It, it, certainly, it certainly is a mystery. I don't, I don't have such an encyclopedic knowledge of Disney film that I'm willing to say for sure. But, of what we reviewed so far, at least going this far back. I mean, I can't, I can't remember one. Maybe close would be Robin Hood, but there were still credits over the the rooster talking. Speaking of, that okay, is a so, better song. <laughs> I mean, then, it's an earworm that makes you want to shove your head through a plate glass window, but it is a better song. <laughs> Than so, anything in The Rescuers. This movie came out in June of 1977. Uh, Winnie hey, the we're Pooh? in the right month. Winnie the Pooh, which we which we we have reviewed uh, a few a few uh, about a month a couple of months ago, came out in March of 77. So this so this is probably the shortest run between two Disney animated movies. Three months. Now, considering Winnie the Pooh was all previously released cartoons, you can you can believe it. Well, like like we said before, this this is still in that Xerox era of Disney, so this very much feels like a B Squad film. Mm. The animation does not hold up very well. Some of it looks very beautiful, but you know. It's it's not. But we get th we get that cold open and we have no idea where we are or why, but I will give it the you know, it's it's a broken down riverboat in the bayou somewhere and this little girl is is sending out a a message in a bottle. Sending out an SOS. Also, a, a better song than any uh, anything in this film, but um, you know she's she's sending out her help note, and we have no context for any of this. But it is at least intriguing. You do kind of want to know. You will not find out until Act Three. 
I will give the credit to the intro. The watercolors used in the in, in, in the drawings of this intro, very beautiful. Yeah, this part is beautiful because it doesn't really move much. It's it's the actual animation, which is kind of sad. You know, it's not Walt Disney Static Watercolor Company. It's Walt Disney Animation Studio. Um, but this this Xerox technique was never a good idea. Yeah. Um, but it was I their mean, way of, of keeping, again, it was the only thing they could do to keep the animation studio going. Make it, yeah, and make movies I mean, on the cheap. It, it, it did keep the company alive, so I guess we should, you know, I guess we have to thank it for that, but it didn't produce pretty movies. It's weird that one of the mo songs, in the, okay, I have to backtrack to the song for just a moment, that the song Someone's Waiting for You was actually nominated for an Oscar. Hold your head up, though no one is near. Someone's waiting for you. Didn't win, I don't think. It but did it not. was nominated. It lost, and it lost to one of the most boring songs in the history. You light up my life. You give me hope to carry on. Um, but yeah, that that's the song that won the Oscar over this. You want to know how bad the music is from The Rescuers? It lost to You Light Up My Freaking Life. That's how bad the music in The Rescuers are. So yeah, let's 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 kind of get into the story because we've been delaying this long enough. I have to admit that their very obvious rotoscoping of the United Nations building—it's obvious, but at least it makes it it looks nice. It's probably the nicest looking building in the movie. Oh yeah, Th this this kind of opening scene of New York is probably one of the prettiest shots in the entire film. Mm-hmm. Because it's really one of the few things... I mean, make fun of the rotoscoping if you will, but rotoscoping is better than Xeroxing. Yeah. So we get the United Nations, and apparently there are rats that come from all of these nations to meet at the Rescue Aid Society. Um, uh, I will say that uh, when, when they showed the, the people going into the UN, it was like... Look, diversity, because <laughs> it is yeah. very much a, uh, it's a small world version of internationalism, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, look, everyone is wearing their national costume so that you know it's the UN. <laughs> and it's, it's kind it of the same way with the mice, too. How will they know they're from other countries if you don't dress them in the in the clothes of their other countries? So, yeah, apparently Aesop's Fables is canon to this movie because the Rescue Aid Society was founded by the mouse from The Lion and the Mouse. And interestingly, it's not just the mouse from The Lion and the Mouse. It's the mouse from The Lion and the Mouse that is also 
uh, what's the other one? A- Androcles and the Lion? Yeah. Except Androcles is now a mouse. <laughs> Euripides mouse. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 actually like two or two at least two different Aesop's fables shoved together into one sure. Okay. Sure. But the Rescue Aid Society exists for reasons and it does um things yeah, we're never told what they do. We just say that they are ne- they, that they never they never resist a call for help. What that means, we don't know. They like it says they're there to help. Who they're there to help? Don't ask. How they help? Also, don't ask. How do you get help to them? Don't ask. do not ask. This is a movie where we don't ask questions and you don't get answers. Do we even know who the American representative for the Rescue Aid Society is? Because it seems to be Bernard, and he's the janitor. (laughs) Americans don't help people. What America are you from? (laughs) Even the United Nations has an American representative. Yeah, but it's not like we do anything. (laughs) So, yeah, it's... Bernard as a character, he very much loves his job. Everyone there knows him, and, you know, he's just as much. He puts his hand over his heart and sings the theme song like everyone else does. But he's still... But he's the janitor. He's the janitor. Yeah. So we got Miss Bianca coming in late because trope, I can only assume. She's a fancy woman who wears fancy clothing, so time does not apply to her. She will show up when she darn well does. I mean... So, but there's also this thing of all of the male mice kind of jumping over themselves over Miss Bianca. You see a bunch of the guys kind of looking at her from behind. The one mouse kind of puts puts a chair over him. Even Bernard gives her a couple of looks. Apparently, as mice goes, she is a looker. Apparently. So we get the... uh, (laughs) So let's kind of speed through this. So we get the bottle coming in. And we get a little comedic... We get the first of many points in this movie of Bernard's superstitious nature. A very afraid of the number 13. Which apparently is something uh, uh, Bob Bob Newhart suggested. Because he himself is afraid of the number 13. There are 13 steps on this ladder. There are 13 steps on this on this walkway. It's Friday the 13th. So, very superstitious nature of Bernard. I don't know why. I guess they wanted him to have a quirk. Well, yeah. And also, apparently, Bob Newhart is afraid of planes. So, they gave Bernard that as well. Hmm. So, I, I don't... A lot of Bob Newhart went into Bernard. Because, and I'm going to say this with all the love in my heart, this is a really badly written movie and these characters have no personality. Yeah. I mean, Bianca is just Ava Gabor. And Bernard is just Bob Newhart. Yeah, I mean, they did not give them personalities. Except they want to help little girl for a reason. Yeah, they, they 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 get the the message out of the bottle. 
Bianca reads it and her heart just breaks for this little girl who's in trouble and she volunteers herself that she's going to be the agent that goes out and helps this little girl, which apparently has never happened before because, oh, rescuing is a man's game. You shouldn't go out there, Miss Bianca. And she takes Bernard with her because reasons. That's yeah, going to happen a lot in this movie. If you've never seen this movie, and I'm going to say something. This may have been a first watch for me. Mm. So we Because have- I don't remember a single blessed thing from this film. Nothing in this film looked at all familiar to me. Now, like I said, I've been watching these with the the Watch Together feature on Disney Plus with a friend of mine. He told me he has seen this film several times. And during this rewatch, I kept asking him questions about this film. And he kept saying, I do not remember because every time I watch this movie, I immediately, it just leaves my brain. There is nothing to this movie that ever sticks in my brain. And in fact, every time he tried to remember... He got it wrong because nothing in this movie sticks to his brain. So it's possible I saw this movie in my childhood and just do not remember it. So why, Bernard? All the other men, obviously, they want to be her partner because men? I'm going to say she chose Bernard because he's the only person in this room that wasn't a perv to her. Yeah, he even says, hello, Miss Miss Bianca. Obviously, he kind of has a thing for her because all of the men in the rescue society has a thing for her. But he seems to be the the nicest person to her and not being... Just don't be a creep. Yeah. Even, Even as the movie goes on, she starts to... It's implied that she already had a thing for him because she's already snuggling up with him when they're in the, in the in, on uh, on the albatross. He, she's already calling him dear. By the midpoint in the movie, these two are already calling each other pet names, like dear and honey. Yeah, but the important thing is that Bernard is never a creep. Men don't be a creep. There you go. Yes. Number one basic rule of everything: don't be a creep. Moving on. Uh, as the chairman says, a woman and a janitor, which apparently doesn't happen. Also, don't be sexist. There you go. Um, or classless. Cause again, or classist, because, yeah. you know, janitors are capable, and uh, what are you going to do if the janitor disappears? You're going to drown in garbage. That's what you're going to do. So maybe don't be classist. Um So, they go off to figure out where this girl is from, and they... they The the, the only clue they have is the letter that says, this orphanage. And they're trying to get to this orphanage. There's a pointless scene where they try to cut through a zoo. I'm sorry, the scene is pointless because they end up going the long way anyway. I do not even remember this scene, and I watched this movie in the last 24 hours. So yeah, they go into the zoo because it's a shortcut. Bernard goes on ahead. He apparently wakes up a lion. You don't see the lion. You hear a lion roar. He runs away. They run away. And they end up going the long way anyway because it's a zoo. There are mice and there are large animals that eat mice in the zoo. But wasn't their entire rescue society founded on making friends with a lion? 
Would you be happy if someone woke you up in the middle of the night? I have never been happy about anybody waking me up ever, so no. Okay, <laughs> that's why. <laughs> but I meant from the mice perspective. Also, like I said, I do not remember this scene. This is baffling to me. I feel like you're making this up to play a trick on me. There's legitimately a scene where they go through a zoo and wake up a lion. Yes. Again, you don't see the lion. You see, you just see Bernard go off. You hear a roar. You see Bernard run away. Say, oh, it's a lion. And he's angry. Well, it, you it woke him up. It is fascinating how little this movie sticks in your brain. Again, this is the most successful movie of the post-Walt <laughs> pre-Renaissance era. This is like the silence from Doctor Who. If I am not staring right at this movie, it does not exist. Bizarre. Let's, let's, let's get to the orphanage and they meet Rufus the cat. So they see Penny's belongings and uh, they, the first they think, oh, maybe she was adopted. Well, then why is her thing still in the orphanage if she's been adopted? And we get our our old cat, Rufus. Who... I do kind of like the, the Rufus the cat mm -hmm. because he sees mice and instead of going like, oh, mice, I'm going to eat them or whatever he just goes oh if they see that mice moved in they're gonna kick me out <laughs> like he's basically just like he's too old for this shiz you know <laughs> like yeah. he just he just wants to lay there in a sunbeam and not do anything and eat and, cookies <laughs> and eat cookies and i feel for this cat so much <laughs> Who wouldn't just want to lay around all day and eat cookies, you know? As that is my entire goal in life. I just want to lay there and eat cookies. And I do love being... Penny gives him the cookies. Uh, Penny's a little naughty girl because she took extra cookies from her lunch and it gave it to the cat. No, that's, that's a sweet, sweet child. As long as they don't have, like, chocolate or something that will hurt the cat. It was ginger, so I think it's okay. Yeah, it might be. I don't know. Can cartoon cats have ginger. Uh, it's, it's, it's he's a, a mouse cat. It's he's a mouse that wears a scarf and glasses. It's okay. Yeah, but yeah, but he tells them that like Penny disappeared and some old woman probably took her, and that leads to the pawn shop. I gotta say, I did not expect essentially a Columbo-style detective scene in a Disney movie. Yeah, it was kind of kind of interesting, and um, Bernard even has a pad and paper taking notes. Yeah, this Ber is Bernard's the working only for this. part of the movie that makes sense. Bernard is working for that. He's he's aiming for a promotion after this mission. Yeah, this is the one part of the movie where it feels like they tried to put plot in. It goes away immediately in the next scene. But this, like, minute and a half of film, good job. Good job, whoever wrote this minute and a half of film. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would have to give a little bit of credit to uh, the, the scene with Penny and Rufus, because the way Penny carries Rufus, that is exactly the way a small child would carry an adult cat. 
This is also the only time Penny has a personality. That is not, I want my teddy bear. Yeah, the whole point is that it's adoption day. She got passed over and she's sad. Yeah, she's sad. She likes the cat. She's a bit of a thief. You know, um, she's a little bit mischievous. Like, every personality trait in the movie that Penny shows is in this one scene. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the movie is kind of, I am a whiny, screamy child who is 100% focused on my teddy bear. So we leave the one good scene in the movie, and we go to the pawn shop. Medusa's pawn shop, which she gets a call from her her lackey Snoops, telling her that what we just saw at the beginning of the movie, Penny's been throwing messages in bottles over the ledge, and they took her, apparently, yeah, they straight up kidnapped this small child and took her to from New York to, I assume, Louisiana, because she's small enough to fit in this small cave to get this big, big old diamond. And she hasn't you, found it yet, which is apparently, uh, has made Medusa very angry. Do they reveal that at this point? Yeah, why not? Be- because I do not remember them revealing any of this until the third act. Yeah, but yeah, let's go ahead. Let's let's, let's pull that. No, I mean, I mean, right seriously. This no, this is a really important point to me. Is I I do not remember them revealing anything about why they took Penny until the third act. Basically, they said that she's the small. She's and you're right. They don't, and they even said she's small enough to fit in the cave. And yeah, that it, ends up being the entire thing. Is they just found. The smallest child with sentience, you know, like, so not a baby, you know, a child that could follow instruction that was still tiny enough to fit in a hole in Louisiana. And that just happened to be this poor kid, Penny. Luck of the draw. It's nothing more deep than that. It's like you are tiny yet conscious enough to follow instruction. And because she's an orphan, uh, no one will miss her. She's an orphan. Yeah. Which, and they you know. they spend, this is what, 77 minutes a movie. Mm-hmm. They spend 50 minutes of it before they tell you that is the in, that is the depth of the plot. You are small enough to fit in a hole that has a diamond in it. That is Medusa's obsession is this diamond that she calls the devil's eye. Why does she want this diamond? Because she's evil. And because it's a two-hander diamond. When she holds this diamond, it takes two hands for her to hold the diamond. Mm-hmm. And and Medusa is not a small woman. She has to be at least almost, what, 5'10", 5'11"-ish, at least compared to, to Snopes and the mice. Yeah, I mean she is she is a rather tall woman. Yeah, I mean I, I'm 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 kinda looking at my own hands thinking she's gotta be like my height. I'm I'm five eleven. I have rather large hands. That is a softball sized diamond. That's her obsession, and since they haven't found the diamond yet and Penny's sending messages out, 
She's gonna go down there personally to make sure this kid finds the diamond. Luckily, Bernard and Bianca got there to hear that conversation. And they jump in the suitcase. It is ejected from the car because Medusa is the worst driver ever. She did. She probably went to the same school Corella DeVille did. After, after going back so that Bianca can pack a bag, they end up at the airport and get on the Albatross. Because the Albatross is going to fly in one evening from New York to Louisiana. How long does it take enough a bird to fly from New York to Louisiana? <laughs> Longer than a single evening. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, I don't know why they didn't just slip onto the plane with the humans. The way I understand it is that one of the animators saw one of Walt's nature documentaries and saw one of the albatrosses taking off and thought it was funny. Okay. But... You know, they fly down to the bayou and uh, they meet a bunch of other random animals mm-hmm. who have moonshine. Because yeah. that's what you do in the bayou. You have moonshine. Ha. Huh. Stereotypes. <laughs> yep, that's all it is. Um, And they meet a... Dragonfly, who is also a motorboat, and they find the wrecked uh, steamboat. We we are skipping over a part because uh, Penny actually tries to escape at one point, straight up tries to escape. And we find out that uh, Mr. Snopes has a very wide collection of fireworks that he likes to... Take uh, instead of your regular old flare gun, he has straight up fireworks on this on this boat that she that she that he sets off uh, when the girl escapes to alert everyone around. Not not very subtle. Oh yeah, and they can send up messages and stuff, like he'll write in the sky with them. Yeah, and they straight up they don't animate these fireworks this is straight up legit real possibly from disneyland recording of fireworks that they animate orville over getting hit by oh yeah also is this where we meet the gators uh yeah we get the we get uh medusa's gators the trained gators that have been watching Penny. Brutus and Nero. Yeah, so they they keep her trapped on the, the boat, and that's why mm. she hasn't been able to escape, is because instead of guard dogs, they have guard gators. Bernard and Bianca uh, get there, and they hide in Penny's pocket. But they're not able to get Penny out of the boat before Medusa breaks in um, and takes Penny away to the cave where the the diamond is. Mm-hmm. Um, and she shoves Penny down the tiny little hole to the cave, but fortunately Bernard and Bianca are still in her pocket, so they're down there with her. 
and Bernard finds the diamond. In the skull of a pirate. Yeah, it's a pirate's cave, and there's lots of diamonds down there, but... They're not big enough for Medusa. Yeah. One thing I did laugh at is Penny's like, yeah, this is a pirate's cave. How do you know it's a pirate's cave? Because of him. And there's this dead pirate with a sword in his chest. Yeah, pirate skeleton with a sword sticking out of his chest and a pirate hat. And I don't remember that scene on Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> that was a good joke. There is a good joke in this film. Congratulations. <laughs> All the time, as, as all of this is going on, the, the animals that we met earlier, the two muskrats has gathered up their animal friends that we've never seen prior to this. One of them is a confederate turtle. Stereotypes! <laughs> the, uh, the problem is the tide is coming in. Now that Bianca and Bernard are there, they've, there three of them are able to get the uh, diamond out. Um, and they are just barely able to get out of the cave right before the tide comes in. Um, and now Medusa has the, the diamond and she's like, yep, I'm, I'm keeping the diamond. And Snoops is like, I thought we were splitting the diamond. And she's like, split a perfect diamond in half? Are you crazy? No, this is mine. And for some reason, she puts it in Penny's teddy bear. Yeah, so that was the whole point, is that she grabs the teddy bear saying, if you don't find this diamond by tonight, you will never see your teddy bear again. And since Penny's entire personality is give me my teddy bear, that works. For some reason, she puts the diamond in the teddy bear and holds the kid and her now ex-partner by gunpoint saying, if you follow me, I'll kill you. And I'm going to take the teddy bear. It's it, it's mine now. It's my bear now. And I'm going to go and away. At this point, uh, even Root has made it back to the, uh, the, the muskrat's house. And the animals are uh, do their little charge to get to the boat. Enough time to set up a trip wire that trips up Medusa to drop the bear to reveal that the, that the diamond is in the bear. And Why then Penny's put... like, my teddy bear! And Snoops is like, the diamond! And then, you know, they're all like, no, give me the teddy bear! No, the diamond! And then the animals are like, chaos! And Time for the chase scene. <laughs> yeah, and the rest of this movie is just a, a chase scene. And honestly, I don't know why most of these characters are here. The animals just show up because we need a chase scene. Yeah, none of these, other than the two muskrats and even Rude, none of the other characters have even been introduced. They just show up in one scene where, hey, we need our, we need words from Bernard and Bianca to come back so we can go and help them. You've never been, we don't know who you are, but is there a scene cut that introduced you? I don't know. Yeah, why are you invested in this at all? Well, they, apparently they've been watching this happen for a while. Confederate Turtle saying, if they put that little girl down in that hole, she'll drown. But they they show up and they set off some fireworks, which causes some chaos. They trap the, uh, the alligators in the uh, elevator of the boat. 
Um, Penny has, for some reason, wanted to drive the the little uh, boat car. It looks, that... it looks like a, yeah, it looks like someone put part of a car on a jet ski. Um, it's like a airboat, but instead of a fan, it has kind of a rock, coal-powered rocket on the back of it. And we even see Orville go through that, and and he doesn't die. He just ends up covered in coal, coal dust because cartoon. Yeah. So, um, but Penny has part of the movie. She well, one throwaway line. She goes, "I really want to drive her car." So, um, Penny finally gets to drive the thing. Which causes Medusa to use the gators as jet skis. Which is where we get the Captain Hook thing that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. And she is whipping these gators with the with the with the uh the tie rope that's still tied to the uh the little speedboat thing. She doesn't need to do that. The gators are already loyal to you. You don't need to whip them. Yeah, I I don't know. Nothing in this movie makes sense. I I actually um, fell asleep a couple of times trying to watch this film, and then just before we recorded, I went back primarily during this scene because I was trying to remember the sequence of events, and I thought I have to be misremembering this. There had to be more to that scene. So I went back and watched this chase scene, and then I thought, no, I actually remembered everything in that scene. It's just none of it makes sense. It's a cartoon for little, little kids. Slapstick comedy is funny, I guess. The villains don't die, though. We never, unless you want to assume that the gators ate Medusa. Yeah, we do leave Medusa... At the holding on to a pole while the gators snap at her feet, and they want to be doing that if you didn't whip them. Yeah, they really liked her up until that point. Snoop's just like escapes. He's just in like a boat, and he he's on a raft. He's he's getting away. He laughs at uh, Medusa's plight, and that's the end of him in the movie. He actually gets away with this. Well, the thing is, is that. Going after the diamond isn't illegal. But still the kidnapping of a child. Well, I mean, the kidnapping of a child, of course. But, you know, the thing about the diamond wouldn't be illegal. He could just be like, I found this diamond. And as long as nobody connected him to Penny, he's rich. <laughs> you know, like, we end up back in New York. Somehow they all ended up back in New York. I don't know how they got Penny back to New York. Because she they can't fit on the albatross. How They probably rode that boat, that little speedboat, all the way to New York. How do you do that from New, from Louisiana to New York? Shut up, it's a cartoon. Yeah. But yeah, we get a news report that the famous Devil's Eye Diamond has been founded by this little girl named Penny. And oh good, she also got adopted. Here's her new mom and dad. For Penny's a jolly good fellow and she's got a mom and dad. That wasn't a joke I did for the podcast. Like, they really sing that song. And Bernard and Bianca are now together. And yeah, and, and back at the Rescue Society. They're, they're at the Rescue Society watching this. It ends with Penny telling the, the reporter that 
she wants to thank her mouse friends for helping her and mice are real people too and they can talk just like everybody else and thank you to the rescue aid society hey bernard and bianca <laughs> it's it's very it's kind of cute mm -hmm. but it's really interesting to watch the reporter be like and now the crazy child is gonna go off and get some therapy with her new mommy and daddy <laughs> thanks for finding a diamond and then we get the final little kind of teaser for a sequel, which is uh, the little dragonfly comes in and is like, we, you know, we got another uh, message in a bottle and Bernard and Bianca are like, we'll take it. And that's, that's, that's it. But yeah, they're off on another mission and that ends the movie. The most successful... <laughs> Animated Disney movie of the post-Walt pre-Renaissance era. The most successful... This got a sequel. Yes. We've kind of talked about this. Uh, not long after this movie, Michael Eisner joins Disney. And him and his people put the animators in the, in the famous meaning. What kind of movies do you want to do? And we get... Oliver Twist with Dogs, Treasure Island in Space, a sequel to The Rescuers, because it is our most successful movie since Walt died. And that's what they went with. And I uh, guess... Well, look at that. That is the only movie of the Renaissance era that we never reviewed. And now that we reviewed the original Rescuers, we might as well review the sequel. Do we need to ask the question? Uh, it's kind of in the premise of the show. Does the Rescuers have the magic? No! 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 Why are you asking me this stupid, stupid question? <laughs> There's parts of this movie I like, but there's way too much boring in this movie. I I understand if someone grew up with this movie and they loved it and it's one of their all-time favorites. Good for you. But for me, I felt like there's a reason why this is... I never really... like. I found more entertainment in, like, Robin Hood and the Aristocats. Even Great Mouth Detective, Oliver and Company, but the Rescuers never really did that for me. And I always wondered, why? Why is this one the one that everyone says is one of the great all-time classics? Why is this one the one that made all of the money during that post-Walt era? Why was this the one they decided this is the one that's going to get the sequel? I don't know what to make of this movie. This, this is a minute and a half of plot in 77 minutes of movie. I have so many questions about this movie. What is the Rescue Aid Society? Why is the Rescue Aid Society? How is the Rescue Aid Society? What? Th these villains make no sense. There has to be an easier way to, to get a shovel. <laughs> I mean, a shovel has to be easier than stealing a child. 
Would this movie have been better if it was Cruella DeVille? I mean, Cruella DeVille, I thought, had the most ridiculous idea in the history of Disney villain plots, but but at least, like, I understand a fur coat not being able to get a shovel a dumber idea than... Uh, I'm not sure Dalmatian would make a good fur coat. That's that's first of all. Like I have I have petted many a Dalmatian. I do not think that would make a good fur coat. But n not realizing shovels exist, also not realizing that small orphans probably also exist in Louisiana. I mean, if you're going with the let's kidnap a child plot. Pretty sure there are orphans in Louisiana. Just, just gonna go out on a limb. Not saying you should ever kidnap a child. That would never be your plot. Please don't ever do that. We are 100% against child kidnapping on this show. Yes, yes, I feel yes. safe to say. But there are easier ways to go about... Get shovel being your number one thing. <laughs> we are not going to see Disney make a big live action, big budget movie about Madame Medusa. No, no. Also, Madame Medusa has no gimmick. What is Madame Medusa's gimmick? Cruella Deville, very clear gimmick. In the book, she's called the Diamond Duchess. That's a gimmick. Good gimmick. Also, Mr. Snoops, how is that? Where's your gimmick, dude? Considering the only person he's ever really around is a small child, I hope he doesn't snoop on her, because that's creepy. I don't know. They're just bad gimmicks. I'm I'm a person who likes a good villain. I, I like a villain with a good gimmick. You know, nobody's cosplaying as Madame Medusa. Yeah. I'm just saying, this whole thing is a hot mess, top to bottom. Give it a pass. We'll see if the sequel stands on its own. So, I do have clear memories of seeing the rescuers down under as a child. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in seeing if that holds up. At the time, as a child, I thought it was a standalone film. I was shocked to find out it was a sequel. We'll go through it next week. The rescuers down under. Alright, so that's all we have to say about... The rescuers throw this one in a pirate cave and let the tide come in. We'll be back next week for the rescuers down under and we'll talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at rewatching the magic Twitter at rewatch the magic. And of course, New episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it.